Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. I just told you. All right, so um, Galatians chapter 6. Uh, we're jumping in to chapter 6 today. First five verses of Galatians 6, so you can turn there. Uh, last week, we walked through the last half of chapter 5, talking about these two roads, life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. Uh, probably my favorite and maybe the most important part of the book of Galatians. He got very practical, if you remember. And so let me just outline just a couple of things to you uh, as we're moving through the passage this morning. Having a little bit of a review is going to make sense. Uh, there are two roads, two ways of thinking and living. Li living. Uh, one is life in the spirit. One is life in the flesh. We outlined that in detail last week, but he lays it out in the passage. And, and remember, he's simply mirroring thoughts that Jesus laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember last week, we read Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 that shows us these two roads. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to what? Good news, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only if you find it. So I said this last week, I'm going to double down on it today. By percentage, there are more people in this room on the broad road than the narrow road. Welcome to Restoration, right? I mean, that's, that's not exactly the best news that you could hear because you're like, which road am I on? That's between you and Jesus. But, but I will say that by percentage, there are more people in the room that think they're okay, but maybe aren't based on a cultural view of Christianity. And the reason that I say that is because just a few verses down uh, in verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, on that day, on the day of judgment, many will come and say, I served it under over. Many will come and say, I brought my kids meal stuff. I grabbed, I grabbed a, a card from the giving tree. I did all the right religious stuff. And Jesus is going to go, um, sorry, I don't know who you are. That should be unnerving for us. Because what it tells us is, for a lot of us, we have received a misunderstanding of the gospel. And the gospel is not about what you do. It is a posture of the heart and what Jesus has already done. And so that's the whole scope of this letter that, that Paul has written to this system of churches, a network of churches in Galatia. And if you remember this whole idea last week, he says, listen, there are these two roads, these two way of thinking uh, in, in Galatians 5.13. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, 
But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. So what is he saying there? He's saying at the end of the day, the gospel is not about you. The gospel is not about your agenda. It's not about you inviting Jesus into your life to make your life a little more compelling. I have been crucified with Christ, chapter two, verse 20. It's no longer I that live, but what? Christ who lives in me. There's a new sheriff in town and when you have said yes to Jesus, you're laying down your agenda for his agenda, a common global agenda to see the world redeemed. And so it's no longer about you. And he says that, man, you don't use your freedom to continue to indulge your flesh but to serve one another humbly in love. And then he says in Galatians 5.14, this was the one that really got me. He says the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. And what's the one command? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. What? It's a lot of laws, y'all. Over 600 laws is summed up. He says it's all fulfilled in one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you remember what we said last week? The reason that he says that is because he makes one assumption. You love you, some you. I love me some me. That's Terrell Owens. Uh, he, he said that. That's the first time I ever heard that. And I'm like, that is astoundingly arrogant, right? I love me some me. But guess what? That is who you are. That is your default position in the flesh. You love you, some you. You will protect yourself at all cost. That's just who you are as a person. And so for the rest of your life, the flesh will be at war with the spirit. And as you are developing intimacy with the spirit, what he's doing is he's rubbing away these rough edges of you pursuing you at all cost. And so because your default position is you love yourself, now he says, love others the way you love you. An others sinner's life. And then he goes on to tell us what life in the spirit looks like. So as we move into chapter six, this theme of practicality is carried over. Now remember, this was not written as chapter and verse. So when we read it today, we're moving into chapter six. Paul's just writing a letter. This is stream of consciousness. And so we've got to remember, last half of chapter three, he's talking about what life in the spirit looks like. And now he's going to get really practical on how this is lived out in the church. Last week, we said, man, the enemy's way of destroying is to destroy from within. And so this early church is being cannibalized. If you remember, Paul has come. He's preached a simple gospel. People have given their lives to Jesus. They've received the Holy Spirit. And now these Jewish believers have come along behind him. And they're infiltrating the system of churches in Galatia saying, hey, listen, Paul got it mostly right. But you must follow the law of Moses. You must be circumcised. Jesus plus the law of Moses plus circumcision equals salvation. So now there are these factions, this dissension rising up in the church and Paul feels the need to put pen to paper to tell them, hey, this is not so. And so two thoughts in the passage today. Uh, number one, communal accountability. Here's what I mean by that. We need each other. We are called to lovingly hold each other to the highest standard. And we see someone struggling, we have to step in 
to that space. So communal accountability, but number two, personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. So not only do we have uh, the opportunity and responsibility to walk along, to share struggles, to help someone when they've fallen, we also have the personal responsibility of living in intimacy in the spirit day after day after day because it's the only shot we have of seeing other people restored. This is equivalent to you put the oxygen mask on yourself first and then you're able to meet the needs of others. Okay, Galatians chapter six, verse one through five. I just wanna read through it. Five verses. Brothers and sisters, that's all of us, brothers and sisters. It's a statement of there's only two genders, all right? Free information, all right? Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Okay, so as we read those five verses, can you just hear all the contradiction in there? He starts by saying, share one, another, share one another's uh, burdens, do it gently, do it humbly, but take pride in your own accomplishments. What? This is gonna make sense as we walk through it. So he starts in verse one and he says, if someone is caught in a sin. So let me address that, but before I do, I wanna look at the second clause first. He says, you who live by the spirit. The ESV says, you who are spiritual. So I don't like that translation because in that translation, that is easy to misread, right? Hey, the really spiritual ones should catch people in sin. And so what does he mean when he says, you who are spiritual are you who live by the spirit? That's why we gotta get rid of the chapter and verse here and just read it in full flow. He's just told us the characteristics the fruit, singular, holistic of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So he's already told us what life in the spirit is. And then he says, because we are led by the spirit, we've got to keep in step with the spirit. That's everything at the end of chapter five. And so now he says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, you who are living by the spirit, everything that he's already said there. So what he's not saying is, hey, really spiritual people? The people that are, the ones that really have it going on, you get to serve and slap down all the sinners that are getting out of line, right? Some of you are wringing your hands right now because you're like, I can't wait to do that. You got issues. <laughs> and we'll see that as we walk through the passage. Remember chapter five, he's already said, serve one another humbly 
and love. And so what he's doing here is practically applying what it means to live in the spirit. So if you're wondering, so how does this practically live out? He's giving us a key way that living in the spirit is practically lived out within the church. So when you're living in intimacy with the spirit, this is secret place talk. This is you getting alone. When I say secret place, I just mean that place where you get alone. It's just you and Jesus. It's just you and the Holy Spirit. And you are sitting and you're being still and you're communing with him. You're, you're listening. You're asking questions. When you are living in intimacy with the Holy Spirit, developing this holistic the holistic characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, what's happening is you're developing spiritual eyesight to see others in their struggle. Know this, it's not about you. It's not about you. When you are living in the characteristics of the Spirit, it is literally an others-centered life. You begin to see others in their struggle. So, Back to the first clause, someone caught in a sin. When you find someone caught in a sin, now this word caught, I think, I think you know, we love that because we become the religious police, right? It's now busted, got it. And then we love to bust people in their sin. We love to call people out. And uh, man, get on social media and everybody's calling out the real sinners in the world, right? And we're standing our high moral ground of all the people that are doing it wrong. But you are not the spiritual police looking for someone to bust. So this is, he's describing someone that is caught in a pattern or a lifestyle of sin. And you observe that just like quicksand, they're being taken under that they are drowning, they are floundering. You, do you know anybody like that? I mean, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you find yourself, you are drowning and you wish that someone would notice it and come and help you. But at very least, think in your mind, do you know someone who's making destructive decisions, lifestyle pattern? And he's like, hey, listen, you who are living in the spirit, Man, you got to see when people are caught up in a pattern or a lifestyle of sin. And what what does he say? Engage. Engage. It's not just an opportunity. It's a responsibility. As followers of Jesus, we are called to engage. When we see someone struggle, we don't run away from it. When you see a building on fire, you don't, well, I mean, you would run away from it, but you know what I'm saying. If you know there's somebody in there that you love, you would run into that building to save them, wouldn't you? I hope you would. If you see a building and I'm in there, I hope you'd run in and help me out. I would. (laughs) I believe you think you would. I do. I do. Um, Hey, Sheila showed up at the end of 8 a.m. this morning and just made her presence known right away. Everybody's like, Where? is that Sheila? Is that the famous Sheila? Hey, thanks for being here early today. No, no more talking. No more talking. All right. All right, here we go. 
Okay, so the question is, if if that's our responsibility to engage, why don't we engage? There's several reasons, but here are a couple. First, if you're not living in the spirit, you've got your own sin struggle, for you to jump in when somebody else is struggling means that's two drowning people. You know what that equals? Two dead people, right? So it is a call to intimacy with the spirit because at the end of the day, don't you want to be able to engage? Don't you want to be so in sync with the spirit of God that he's opening your eyes to the struggle of others so that you can engage and jump in when given the opportunity? But if you're not living daily surrendered to the spirit of the living God, you're never gonna get there. Secondly, it's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Because again, it's not about you. God is for you, but he's not about you. And so when we think about the gospel, it is not just Jesus came into my life to make my life a little more compelling. I got some stuff I need to do. I got some mad skills. Now me and Jesus, great combination so I can go accomplish everything that I have in my pathway to do. No. When you said yes to Jesus, you gave up your rights to your life. And the holistic picture of the gospel is you were joining him in what he's doing in the world. It's not about you. And so a misunderstanding of the gospel is, man, I got to steer clear of all the sinners. I got to stay back if they're struggling. I don't want them to drag me down. That is a complete misunderstanding of who we're called to be as followers of Jesus. And so you may be naturally conflict averse. You don't love to have the hard conversations, but that does not absolve you of the responsibility to get involved. Now, on the other end, if you're too excited about getting involved in conflict, that's a problem too. And so it's somewhere in the middle. And uh, this is not a one-to-one, but uh, thinking about the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Martin Luther King had something great to say about it. Do y'all remember that story that there's a guy that gets beat up, left for dead, a priest and a Levite come, down, come by and they walk on the other side of the road and then it's the Good Samaritan, uh, the, the, the dirty guy that Jesus chooses to be the hero of the story. And uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He says, the first question the priest and Levite asked was, If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? You're in one of those two camps. And when it comes to bearing one another's burden, when when it comes to seeing someone struggling in their brokenness, the question is, are you moving toward them? Are you passing by on the other side of the street because you don't want to get messy? The essence of the gospel is that Jesus transformed you for the purpose of joining him in redeeming the world. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting verse 17. We quote this one a lot. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. So in Christ, you are new. It says the old is gone, the new has come. But here's the cool part. Check it out. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. So you are reconciled and given the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? It means that because you've been reconciled, 
you get to go be an agent of reconciliation in the world. Then he goes on, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation, what is the message of reconciliation? Let me simplify it for you. This is who I was, I encountered Christ, this is who I am as a result. It's that simple. If, you're, if, if, if like you grew up memorizing the Roman road, that's awesome. At the end of the day, uh, the, the most compelling thing about you is who you were before Christ, how Christ changed you, and how you've been since. That is the message. You have a ministry now to be a part of redeeming the world, and you are armed with the message of the power of your story. So he says, we therefore are Christ's ambassadors. Ambassadors. You are God's representative in the world. And so God, we're making his appeal through us. And then he says, we, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He's saying, be reconciled to God because when you're reconciled, God's gonna use you to be a part of reconciling the world. Do you see it? That is the essence of the gospel. And so if you have embraced the gospel that says, man, I am so glad I'm not going to hell. That's a pretty low bar, y'all. The myopic view of the gospel says, whew, thank God I'm saved. Hope all those bad people don't weigh me down. I got to steer clear of them. God's like, ah, oh, cool story, bro. Um, I died for them too. And I've armed you with a message of reconciliation. I'm inviting you into the space where you see the struggle and you move toward it. You don't run from it. And so what does he say? He says, we restore that person gently. We restore that person gently. Now remember, contextually, fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Do you see the context? He's told us this holistic view of life in the spirit is that gentleness is one of the things. It's not that, let me, let me clean this up. I said this at least in one of the services last week. Uh, I, when we talk about the gifts of the spirit, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, um, there, there are these gifts that the spirit brings on us and Paul outlines them in three different places. It's not an exhaustive list. There's some overlap in, in those lists. But here's the point. The fruit of the Spirit, those are not gifts of the Spirit. Because he says in 1 Corinthians 12, not everybody has all the gifts, but everybody has a gift. But now what Paul is saying is, these are the characteristics that you get when you receive Jesus, the Spirit of the living God on the inside of you. So you don't get a pass. You don't get to say, well, I'm not the gentlest person in the world, but that's fine because pretty patient, right? You don't get to say that. You don't get to say, well, I'm loving, but I'm not really kind, but that's okay. You also don't get to say, well, for me, I am naturally impatient. The shot clock's always running, right? Shooter's got to shoot. So, man, I just, I'm always moving. I'm always like, what's next? And, and uh, this whole building process has been unnerving for me because we got to go, y'all. We got to go. And yet intimacy with the Spirit slows me down. Because guess what? I've got all the patience I'll ever need on the inside. 
because the Spirit's given it to me. When I choose not to access it, is that, is that my fault or his fault? It's on me. But here's what I can't do. I can't spend the rest of my life reading through that list and either giving myself a pass on patience or reading this as a list of boxes to check and say, oh, well, I really need to work on patience this week. No, you know what I need? I need to be in the secret place with Jesus. And when I am, I tend to be more patient. When I'm not, get out of my way. First Peter 4, 8, Peter says it really well. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. So Paul has said it, Peter's doubling down on it. It is the power of love. That's how we restore people. We move toward them in a place of love and love covers a multitude of sin. It doesn't mean we overlook it, but, but the love of Jesus can transform the hardest heart. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. You truth speakers in the room that are just keeping it real. Paul has something for you in 1 Corinthians 13. If you have not love, you are a resounding gong or claiming, clanging symbol. What does that mean? It is worthless. Truth spoken without love is worthless. So if you can't say it in love, keep your mouth shut. I say that lovingly. That sounded harsh. I mean that lovingly. Speaking the truth in love. It's the motivation behind correction. And again, because gentleness is a fruit of the spirit, um, here's what I know for sure. Uh, gentleness is subjective, true or false. What one person thinks is gentle, someone else thinks is a sledgehammer. So know thyself. Ask your spouse. And if you ask, am I gentle? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> but seriously, we got to know that, that sometimes... We are not self-aware at all. And you're like, well, I said that gently. No, you didn't. You were a bull in a china shop. But he says that when we move toward correction, we do it with gentleness. Then he says, watch yourself or you may also be tempted. So he is not talking here about whatever sin struggle they have, you getting caught up in it. That's a possibility and you need to keep your eyes open for that. But that's not what he's saying here. This is speaking directly to motivation of the heart. This is compassion versus justice. Again, this is walking humbly in love. And so the question becomes, uh, what is your heart position where this person is concerned? So again, if you're not coming from a place of love, if you're triggered, so know this, if you're triggered, don't say anything in that moment. That will not be helpful. It's taking three or four steps back. That's why he's saying, man, caution, caution. Don't get caught up that now it's no longer about your reproof. It's no longer about you moving toward them because of the way that you did it. 
So again, if you're too eager to have a conversation with someone, there's something wrong. There's no arrogance or self-righteousness in the kingdom of God. That's not the language of God. God does not speak in shame. He does not speak in guilt. He does not speak in fear. That is not from the Lord. So if you ever feel like, man, I feel like I heard from the Lord that I need to get my act together. Or man, I need to step up. Really? That's not how God speaks. God encourages you. God invites you. He's always inviting us into a better life. That's what he does. And he is crazy about you. He knows your full potential and he's always wooing you, coaching you into it. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit will convict you, but that's not condemnation. He doesn't shame you into following you. He does say, hey, you've chosen a new life. That doesn't fit in there anymore. That's conviction. But what is that? It's an invitation into a new life. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus speaks to it. He said, judge not, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. What do we know that as? It's the golden rule. Do unto others the way you'd have them do unto you. And so just remember, when you level something at someone, you've always got to ask the question, ask the question is this the way I would want to be approached? That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, listen, by the same way that you approach something, just know it's the same way that it's gonna come back to you. And then he says, he uses a little carpenter humor. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It all speaks to motivation, right? We get so caught up in our offense or our, we are just so, so upset about what someone else has done. And how many times have you given yourself a pass while leveling an accusation at someone else? He's like, hey, Take the two by four out of your eye so you can see the speck in someone else's. So the gospel, you can't spell the gospel without spelling go. My Southern Baptist pastor said that growing up. Um, but you can't go without the right heart or the right motivation. You don't just to go off half cocked and do whatever you want. Okay, a lot on verse one, we will be briefer on the rest. Um, uh, verse two, carry, carry each other's burdens and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens. So what's the implication there? Life is hard, y'all. Is there anybody in the room that's never had a burden in your life? Never had a care in the world? We had one guy raise his hand at eight o'clock um, and I rebuked him publicly. I didn't, but, uh, uh, but at the end of the day, life is hard, y'all. And if you don't believe that life is hard, then you are shielding yourself from, hum from something because life is just hard. Some burdens are short-term, situational. Others are long-term and require patience, perseverance, and grace. But what is a burden? It's a burden, 
It's hard. And it is hard to carry one another's burden because there are some people that it's easy to jump in and help out in a pinch. For some, it's very hard when you recognize, hey, this is likely gonna be a lifetime. There's no end in sight. And he says, but that is a command. That is a call. There is no time limit to carrying a burden. And I love here that he says that when you do it, you fulfill what? The law of Christ. And so he spent this entire letter debunking the law, saying, no, it's all Jesus, no law, no law. And now he says, hey, when you do this, you fulfill the law of Christ. And so the question is, what is Jesus' view of carrying burdens? We'll get a little glimpse in Matthew 5, again, Sermon on the Mount. You should read it every day for the rest of your life. Take you 18 minutes, 5, 6, and 7. If you're really, if you're really brave, memorize it, all right? So uh, he says these things. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Nope. Um, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What? Give to the one that asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So here's the whole idea that Jesus is getting across there. He's like, hey, listen, if someone wants to sue you and they want to take your coat, give them your shirt as well. Give them the shirt off your back. Have you ever heard that phrase? He says, if someone tells you to go one mile, go the extra mile. Go with them another. Ever heard that? And then he talks about this life of radical generosity. If somebody asks you for something, just give it to them. Okay, anybody have a problem with any of that? I mean, we hear the words of Jesus and so many times we're like, Jesus died for my sins. Yeah, and he calls us to a life that doesn't make sense without him. I will never naturally do those things. I mean, I'm not taking off my shirt right now. I'm way too vain for that. I don't have a six pack. I have like an 18 pack, right? And I don't want anybody to see that. Nobody wants to see that. Somebody tells me to walk an extra mile. I'm like, what? I can barely walk a mile. A lot of radical generosity, whatever's mine is yours. Do you feel that way? Not without Jesus, it just doesn't make sense. So Jesus is talking about this idea of being sacrificial with your time, with your talent, with your treasures. And then that classic passage, Matthew 11, it's like, hey, are you burdened? Are you anxious? Are you worried? Give it to me. Give it to me. I'll carry it. In fact, I'm gonna replace your burden with my light burden. I couldn't be lighter. And I'm offering you something that you can handle. I'll take on your burden. In fact, have you ever thought about the cross? That the cross is actually a picture of him literally carrying your burden? All sin for all time, your greatest struggle, he says, I got you, dog. I got you. So next time you have this about carrying somebody else's burden, just remember 
Jesus did it. And it's the life that he's inviting us into. And what I love is he's always playing the long game. We get burned all the time. We've got a limit to what we're willing to do. Clearly, Jesus has boundary issues because he went all the way to the death. So I was thinking about this in my own life. So um, I think I am very best in crisis. Um, when, when the chips are down, you want me on your team. Because I just go into emotional lockdown and I'm just like in fix-it mode. Like, tell me what you need me to do. I become an exceptional listener. Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk with you to get you uh, from point A to point B. Here's the challenge. Sometimes that's the case. More often, it's getting from A to Z. And people need you to walk through 26 letters of the alphabet with them. That's hard, y'all. And sometimes I buy into the lie that I'm just not built for that. I'm a crisis guy. Man, I've got, I'm, 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 a, I'm a sprinter in a marathon, right? So I'm gonna run hard and then I gotta, whew. that's after the first 100 yards. And so, uh, uh, but, but, but in reality, that's a lie. Because in the spirit, I'm made for the long game. I'm made for it. And so any attempt for the enemy to convince me that I need to tap out because that's above my pay grade or, hey, time's up, we've had enough time together, it's time for you to move on, that's a lie. It's just not rooted in anything real or true in the kingdom of God. Okay, verse three. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. So he is speaking directly to pride. So self-deception is the worst deception. When we convince ourselves of something that we're not, that is just straight up deception. So let me just, uh, collectively in all the room, you have not arrived. You have not arrived. This side of heaven, you got stuff. And, and we're all on this journey, right, to, to follow Jesus more closely, to, to be with him so that we can become like him, so in some measure we can do the things that he did. That's the desire of my heart. That's who I want to be. But I know that this side of heaven, I'm not going to get there. And so don't deceive yourself that somehow you have arrived, that somehow you're above it, and now you can level uh, judgment and and conviction to all the sinners in the room. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all in need. We're all in need. So pride will keep you from engaging. It will keep you from being a noticer of other people's needs. Uh, pride says, what about me? Who's gonna bear my burdens? You know, it's, it's like, hey, that victim mentality is not helpful in the kingdom of God. You know who will bear your burdens? Jesus. If there's nobody else in the world, he's already borne your burdens. And so it's a shift from a me-centered, hey, what about me? Or I don't have the bandwidth to walk through this with them. Again, you're right, you don't. But Jesus in you does. 
and we need each other. So let me make a quick plug for Regen. So uh, let me dispel any myth. Regen is not for porn addicts, alcoholics, people with drug addictions. There are people that struggle with all those things at Regen, but it's so much more holistic than that. It's for people with self-addiction, which by the way, is every person in this room. And so uh, I would encourage you, if you are looking for a way to live an other-centered life and to get healed from this myopic addiction to self, 6.30 Monday nights, it will change your life. It is not for the faint of heart. It'll take you probably close to a year to go through all of the steps to be free and healed, but it will change you for the rest of your life. And so I would encourage you, it's the fastest growing ministry at Restoration and it's, it's happening because there are people that get in there and they realize I'm not alone in this struggle. And so you have a, a room full of people, large group like this, and then you break into smaller groups and what you get to hear is, oh, you're just like me. You struggle just like me. And listen, at Restoration, our highest value is transparency. I hope that you feel that on stage on Sunday mornings, but we want that infiltrated in every ministry in the church. Regen, re-engage, life groups. The re-ministries talk about this, draw a circle around yourself. And that's what he's saying here. He's like, hey, listen, draw a circle around yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Your problem is not your spouse. Did you hear me? <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, you don't know my spouse. <laughs> that's why you need re-engage, all right? So, so, but here's the deal. Your problem is not your spouse. Your problem is not your neighbor. Your problem is not your kids. It's not your boss. It's not your coworkers. You're the problem. Draw a circle around yourself and recognize God wants to do something in you and through you. And your only shot at, at receiving and doing everything that he's called you to be and do is to be fully whole and fully healed. Don't deceive yourself that you're good enough. When did good enough become the standard? Holiness is not good enough. It's I'm on this journey to become more like Jesus. Okay, verse four, we're almost done. <laughs> yeah, we're really almost done. All right. Um, yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Okay, what a peculiar verse in the middle of this. He's just talked about the beauty of, of really restoring people gently, of carrying one another's burden, and then he's like, hey, take pride in yourself. What's he really saying? What he's saying is have a look under the hood. If you're gonna take pride, take pride in yourself alone. What's going on in you? What's really going on? He is speaking about the sin of comparison. So this is rampant in the church, but you know you. And the most common thing that we do inside and outside the church is we look at what someone else is doing and we compare ourselves based on that, right? So know this, you're always gonna find somebody that is worse off than you 
right? You're always going to find somebody spiritually that's falling behind. And I know that makes you feel great about yourself, right? But what the unintended consequence of that is self-righteousness. And instead of moving toward them and, and gently restoring them and walking them in community into a better life, we tend to look down on them. And so the sin of comparison is I'm doing better than you. On the other side, you all know that person that's just killing it in the relationship with the Lord and you're kind of envious of them and you look at them and you're like, well, I'll never be that. If that's what that means, I'll never be that. Anybody ever feel that way? And you know what that is? It's self-loathing. It's you saying that what Jesus has done in my life is really not sufficient for me. It's only sufficient for them. You're minimizing the cross in your life. And so on this end, it leads to self-righteousness where we're looking down our nose at others. On this end is self-loathing, meaning I'll never get here. But know this, self-analysis and comparison has never been the goal. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, hey, listen, there needs to be some self-introspection. What Paul is talking about is what David prayed at the end of Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. Are you ready? See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's a tough one to pray. Is there anything offensive in me? And then all of a sudden, it just starts scrolling. The spirit goes, well, yeah, we got some stuff. <laughs> I'm in any big thing. <laughs> this is the spiritual life. We're like, hey, I want to be as close to you as I can, Jesus. I don't want anything becoming, coming between you and me. If there's any offense in me, man, bring it to my attention because I want to live in the everlasting way. What sin do I need to confess? Where am I harvesting bad fruit in my life? I love that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he talks about boasting. Very counterintuitive, 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse five. He says, I'll boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. So he's like, hey, if I'm gonna boast, I'm gonna boast to my weakness. Way to go, Paul, right? And then he goes on. If I should choose to boast... I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth, but I will refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with him to take it away from me. Are you ready? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul addresses boasting. He's like, hey, I'm gonna boast. I'm gonna boast in my weakness. And he's not saying I'm gonna celebrate my weakness. I'm not gonna say, woo, I tied one on last night. You should have seen me. I stumbled home. No, 
He's like, I'm boasting that I am weak and it is in my weakness that Christ's strength is perfected. It is when I am the weakest that he is the strongest. So you want to boast? Jump all over it. Boast in the places where Jesus wants to make the most difference in your life. Then verse five, this is where we end. He says, each, sorry, for each one should carry their own load. Each one should carry their own load. So it's confusing. What's he saying? Bear one another's burden, carry your own load. Well, it must be that there's a difference between a load and a burden. So what is the load he's talking about? This is your assignment. This is your role. This is your E210 calling. This is your identity being and doing in the kingdom of God. It's who you were made to be. I would make a horrible accountant. Any accountants in the room? Um, I would make a horrible architect. Any architects in here? Um, I'd make a horrible carpenter. It's where me and Jesus part ways. Um, yeah, don't give me a hammer. I will flat screw something up. Um, I'd make a horrible pilot, mainly because I can't fly a plane. Um, but you know what? You might make a horrible pastor. Some would argue I do. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, here's the truth of the matter. I know who I am and who I've been made to be. And so my load is my unique role in the kingdom, the thing I was meant to do. And so I need to take full ownership and personal responsibility to be and do everything that I've been called to be and do. And so do you. So your load is that thing that you have been given, that unique unis that's been placed on your life. And that's just a load that's been given to you that you carry on your own. And through intimacy with the Spirit, He's bringing it alive in you day after day after day. There are moments that are burdens. When something happens that I can't handle. And that is when I need other people to come alongside me. And I've got to be willing to tap out and say, hey, I need help. Pride keeps me from that. So uh, this building process, for instance, uh, it's, it's been 18 months. Um, I don't really understand construction. So I ask a lot of questions. But as the months have worn on, there are things that I just don't understand. And as we're getting to the finish line, we've had some unique challenges that we're trying to work through. And there have been two elders on our elder team, uh, Matt Bulpit and Shane Chesser, who both have commercial construction experience. And where my expertise has ended, if it were up to me, uh, it would probably be another six to eight months before we'd be in the building. But these guys have stepped into that space to walk alongside and help me understand what needs to happen next. And no, it's a burden I carry all the time. But here's what I know. I'm 
the, the chief visionary of restoration. I'm the mouthpiece. I'm the loudest voice in the room, right? That I, I'm saying, this is the hill we're charging. But at the end of the day, there are some things that are above my pay grade that when I try to take them on, it's a burden to me because it's outside of my wheelhouse. And so I need someone with that expertise with their load to come and release me from the burden because they're living into their full potential in the kingdom of God. Do you see how the kingdom of God works? We all need each other. We all need to be working alongside each other. So you're carrying your load and you step in when I'm under a burden and you take that on because it's very natural for you and it costs you a lot less than it costs me. Does that make sense? This is the kingdom of God. And so we restore people. We see people in a struggle. We run toward the the burning building, not away from it. And we do it to gently restore them in love because they matter to God. And because they matter to God, they need to matter to us. So that's communal accountability. But then we have to take personal responsibility for our relationship with Jesus for our relationship, intimacy with the Spirit, that we know that it's only the Spirit that curbs my appetite for the flesh. It's only the Spirit that is compelling me and making me more like Him. And without Him, I can't get here from there. I need the Spirit every day of my life. So I just want you to close your eyes and I just wanna ask you just a few questions as we close, just for you to think about. These will be up on the website later this afternoon and so um, you can write them down if you want to, but if you just wanna let them soak in. Number one, who do I see that is living entangled in sin? Ask the Lord, who is it that's close to me? that I see entangled in sin. How is God calling me to be a gentle restorer? How is God calling me to be a gentle restorer? Who has God called me to engage with, to bear their burdens? Short-term, long-term, doesn't matter. Who is it that he's calling me to engage with? Where have I allowed pride to keep me from engaging in someone else's life? Where am I comparing myself to other people, either self-loathing or self-righteousness? Where have I failed to take personal responsibility for my own actions? 